All right, how you guys doing? We're getting to the end, and I realized as I was preparing this last night, like I said, I only have two more classes to prepare. My wife was like, oh, so there's only one week left? I was like, no, there's two weeks left. But I count it as once I'm done preparing, the class is over because this is the fun part. Um, so I see the light at the end of the tunnel, and once I'm done the last class, then that is Christmas to me. The whole month of December is going to be Christmas, and I have wonderful things planned, so I'm looking forward to that. Let's start our time in prayer, and then we'll jump right into this. Lord, I just thank you for your word, which is beautiful and which is good. And uh, although people have been trying to malign it for many years, it still stands strong and tall. And um, all the filth and mud that people throw on it just falls off because it is a good word. And I just thank you for that. And I, I praise your name and I pray that you'll give me the ability to do a good job of explaining the goodness of your word to people. In Jesus' name, amen. So um, let's do a little roadmap to let people know, let you guys know where we are and where we're going. So I mentioned, I had a slide up that kind of explained how we were supposed to be doing this class, and I'm a little bit out of order, um, but I'm learning as I go. So first, God exists. So we prove that through the Kalam cosmological argument that God exists, that God is personal, God is powerful, and then God is um, intelligent. We prove that through the, uh, the design argument, the fine-tuning. Then God is moral. We prove that through the, the moral argument that God is the center and locus of, of truth. Then we answered the objection, what about evil? And we're working our way up towards, from, from a general, in general, there is a God that exists, which we see from the Big Bang, to God is intelligent, God is personal, God is loving, created a wonderful place for us, to God is moral, there's a moral sense within us. We know that there is right and wrong. Because we already know there's a God, that's the, likely, that's the logical place to hang morality. Um, it, it just, um, and there's no other hook, like I said, big enough to hold the idea of absolute morality. Then we need to answer the question, well, what about evil? If moral absolutes exist, then how is there evil in the world if God is good? So now we're up to the threshold of Christianity. So up to this point, Jews, Muslims, and Christians all agree that there is a God, he's intelligent, he's moral, and um, that basically free will is responsible. For, well, they might express it slightly differently, but they would be in accord with this. Now we're going to jump into, oh, and I want to explain too. So God exists, um, uh, I don't know how to illustrate this quickly, but this is an offensive um, claim. It's offensive. We, God exists from the Big Bang. Uh, God is intelligent. Again, offensive. We're declaring that God is intelligent and atheists are saying, no, God doesn't exist. There's other explanations. Uh, the moral argument proves that God exists. Um, we're, we're trying to prove that. What about evil is a pushback. This, so we're on the defensive. We're trying to explain how God can exist with evil, <laughs> with the existence of evil. Um, I talked about the Crusades and other things like that. That really should have been up here. Once we talk more about specifically our religion, then we could talk about some of the, the problems with our religion. Um, but right now, what we're going to talk about is the Old Testament. 
What's that? Because that's kind of the logical place to go. That's the next stop along our roadmap is, okay, so you say that Christianity is the right religion. What about the Bible? There's lots of crazy stuff in the Bible that we don't know what to do with, that even a lot of Christians don't know what to do with. Um, there's lots of uh, things that we might call um, historically backwards. There's violence. There's all sorts of, of bad things in the Bible. So what do we do with that? As well, how do we interpret it? As modern people, also as Christians in a new covenant, how do we interpret the Old Testament? So these are a lot of big questions that we're going to try and tackle today. Uh, what are the stakes for today's class? Um, there are at least three big dangers that I want to help us try and avoid. Um, last week we talked about liberalism. So there's people out there that are like, look, the Bible just tells us about the universal human condition. It just tells us how to be an ethical person. Basically, the point of all the religions in the world is to be an ethical person and to build you know, a good society. Basically, salvation through works. Um, this is not the gospel. This is another religion. And this is a danger. And, and people will, will use passages in the Old Testament um, and... Well, I'll just give you an example. In Rob Bell, in his book, Velvet Elvis, talks about, you've all heard the Sunday school story about uh, the walls of Jericho falling down and Joshua beat the battle of Jericho. Did you know that after the walls fell down, the Israelites marched in and killed every man, woman, and child in that city? And then he leverages that to say, well, should we really be reading the whole Bible in a literalistic way? And shouldn't we move over to a different way of interpreting the Bible? And Rob Bell is, is famous for just asking a lot of questions and not, you don't really know what he's getting at. But it kind of seemed like his, his big picture was liberalism. Is just, you know, yes, it gives us good principles, but we don't take it literally. It's not an authority for our lives. Along with that is um, a big word, libertine. The danger of being a libertine or libertinism, I guess. Um, so a libertine is somebody that just, um, well, it could apply to a lot of different things, but a Christian libertine says, okay, I'm a Christian, but I can live however I want. So as Laura has mentioned numerous times, there's a lot of people in, this, in the South where in her context that are like, I'm a Christian, I just am not living right. That's a libertine Christian. And, and they're saying, Yes, Jesus is my savior, but it doesn't affect my life. And I, I shouldn't have to because, hey, you know, we're saved by grace, not by works and all that sort of stuff. Um, some people as well will, will have kind of a theological way of expressing this. To say... Here's the Bible. I can... Does that kind of look like a Bible? Yeah. <laughs> okay, so here's the Old Testament. Here's Paul and the New Testament. And in the middle we have Jesus, right? And Jesus is kind of the center of the Bible. And people will say, well, I'm just a red-letter Christian. I just focus on Jesus. I don't know about, you know, the God of the Old Testament and all that craziness back there. I don't really read Paul very much. You know, it's kind of legalistic, got angry sometimes. Mostly I just care about Jesus. I'm a red-letter Christian. I care about caring for the poor, I care about a humble attitude, I care about, you know, the fruits of the, not the fruit of the Spirit, that's Paul, but I, I care about, you know, the internal transformation that Jesus talked about and getting saved by faith. 
Um, depending on how you do, I mean, it is true that Jesus is the center, right? So we should emphasize, quote unquote, the red letters. I don't know if you guys all know that in some Bibles, the words of Jesus are in red to emphasize, you know, where that's coming from. Um, but if we're only taking Jesus, what we're doing is we're falling into an old, old, old heresy developed by a guy named Marcion uh, in the, the second century. So um, he lived about 100 years after Jesus, uh, actually less than that, about 80 years after Jesus when he was born. I'll put that in red so you don't get too scared off by the big word. It's just putting an ism after Marcion. But Marcionism is the idea. So he, he comes along in the second century, develops this idea that then became very, very popular in the early church, um, where the Old Testament was written by an, a bad God, an angry God, um, that in, imprisoned humanity here in this evil world. A uh, very Platonic sort of a ba- basis to that. And then Jesus comes along. And Jesus, I, I forget exactly how, where Jesus comes from in Marcion. Marcion's thinking, but he's a smaller God that comes along and he defeats the original God and he saves us from him. So most of the Old Testament we don't need because this is, this is the creator God. He's bad. He's ugly. He's, he's, he gets mad. We don't like him. Uh, but Jesus, we like Paul. You know, he was pretty Jewish. He was pretty influenced by uh, the creator God. Uh, so we don't really read Paul. And so Marcion proposed his own canon which was mostly just the Gospels, a few, you know, James, and, and a few little bits and pieces here and there, just a small little canon. And he was actually really important. We'll probably talk about him next week when we talk about New Testament reliability, because um, before this, the church just, you know, had a bunch of different books, and they used them. And Marcion comes along and says, oh, here's my canon. And the, New Te- and the church freaked out, and they were like, no, actually, we need to figure out what the canon is. Um, and so Marcion was kind of the spark that, that pushed the, the early church to be like, this is the canon, and all of it is the Bible. Uh, a little bit debated, like it might have been other things. It's really early in church history to know what the actual spark was. But um, in his book um, that I mentioned before, uh, J. Gresham Machen, Liberalism and Christianity, he points out that liberalism is like Marcionism. It's, a, it's, it's Marcionism reborn. Because they're saying all that we need is Jesus and don't give us the Old Testament and don't give us Paul, just give us Jesus. But the problem with taking Jesus out of context like that is that Jesus can become anything you want him to be. Have you noticed that everybody loves Jesus? Everybody loves Jesus. The Mormons love Jesus. The Muslims love Jesus. The Buddhists love Jesus. The Hindus really love Jesus. And the Catholics, the Protestants, the Marxists love Jesus. The feminists love Jesus. Everybody loves Jesus. And everybody thinks Jesus is on their side. God is on my side. Who can be against me? Right? But the reason that Jesus always seems to be on your side is because we don't need the Old Testament. We don't need Paul. So who is the the Jesus of Karl Marx? Well, Jesus is the first Marxist. Who is the Jesus of the Buddhists? Well, he is the next Buddha, you know. Who is the Jesus of the Hindus? Well, he is another... uh, See, a reincarnation of Vishnu, or, um, you know, he's, he's one of their, their, their many gods. Who is the Jesus of, you know, the, the Mormons or the Muslims or whoever? If you take him out of his context and just take the stories, because stories, you know, the, the first person, um, the autobiography of Jesus, and then the parables that he shared can be interpreted in different ways, which is why we need to have the Jewish context of Jesus 
So when we know where he's coming from, oh, Jesus is a Jew. Okay, so he's not, there's, that puts limits on it. And, the, and you interpret his stories in light of the Jewish context, and then specifically in light of the Old Testament. And then Paul explains the significance of Jesus, and he explains how that all works out. So if we throw out the Bible and just keep Jesus, especially if we throw out the Old Testament, we don't have Jesus anymore. And this is a huge danger because people don't read their Bible anymore. And especially if they're going to read their Bible, they're going to read the the red letters, and they're not going to do the hard work of slogging through the Old Testament, being shocked, sometimes being horrified by the things that they find there, grappling with some of these hard issues. And so we are, sometimes we are kind of closet Marcionites in our evangelical churches that, and and this will crop up in how we even talk about the Bible. The God of the Old Testament this, the God of the Old Testament that. It's the same God, people. It's the same God. If you say the God of the Old Testament got angry, that, that's not true. That, I mean, you're technically expressing a heresy. I understand where you're coming from. Um, but it's the same God. So this is what's at stake. Nothing less than the entire gospel. Everything is at stake if we don't understand the Old Testament well. But, as I already mentioned, there's a lot of things in our way. Um, I remember taking a course in college. One of the first courses we took was Old Testament survey. And uh, a dear friend from Japan, after one of the classes came back and he was like, God just killed so many people. Just so many people dead. He was talking, we just studied about Jesus or, or God leading the, the Israelites through the wilderness. And it was like, they grumbled, he sent snakes. They grumbled again, he sent, loca- he sent uh, you know, made the ground open up and swallow up a bunch of people. Fire fell from heaven on people that were trying to worship him but didn't do it quite right. They started to revolt. God sent fire. Just people dying, dying, dying all the time. He said, I think I'm just going to stick with Jesus. I don't understand this whole Old Testament thing. Um, what are some of... This is your homework. Yeah, so on, on your... Um, starting into your notes here. There's violence in the Old Testament... There's evil, sin, and social regression in the Old Testament, things like slavery, um, concubines, and things like this. There's weird laws in the Old Testament. There's scientific absurdities, axe heads floating, global flood, um, Noah in the belly of the whale, I mean Jonah in the belly of the whale. Uh, Scientific errors, archaeological problems, number problems, etc. So these are the things that we're going to try and cover today. Clearly, we're not going to settle all of these issues. Um, there are whole books written. Uh, there's uh, an encyclopedia of Bible difficulties out there. If you just Google these things, if you ask a question, what about this in the Bible? Often there's really great answers online. Um, this reminds me that I need to tell you again, we have a little bit of an atypical way of going about this. We have your notes for today, and we have this little sheet here. It's a little bit, looks a little different, looks a little bit nicer. Um, my reason for this is I have about a three-point outline for our class, but the points that are really, 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 really important for you to get are here on this page. And so I don't want these points to get lost in the midst of everything else. And so you can just keep this aside. Maybe you want to just put down a few really important notes on this, but keep this. If you, if you need a, a reference, you hit a passage, you don't know what to deal with, you can go back to this page and this will help you. Uh, and this is going to be the roadmap of how we're going to go through um, our material today. 
So, the first, and I want to mention two resources then as well. Uh, the first is that um, uh, Paul Copan has written a book, Is God a Moral Monster? I have it at the top here uh, of, of your first of your notes. It's Got a Moral Monster by, by Baker Publishing Group. Um, it's kind of the book on this issue, uh, so I would recommend that to you. I've recorded three podcasts on this. Uh, when God, Old Testament difficulties, when God was mad, Old Testament difficulties, when the saints were bad, and weirdness in the Old Testament. So there's more material in those podcasts than I'm going to be able to fit into this class. So I'd recommend that you go back and listen to those. Um, yeah, so now that we have that out of the way, let's get into the material. So well, the first thing we're going to talk about is when God was mad. So all the wrath in the Old Testament, the, the breaking out of his wrath against his people, God sent, sends the flood, kills most of humanity, just saves a few, um, sends down fire on Sodom and Gomorrah, Egyptian plagues, kills the firstborn, etc., etc., etc. How can God um, legitimize being so mean, so angry, so wrathful towards humanity? Is this working, by the way? It's working. They're just wondering if they can have a copy of the paper as well, and the board is mirrored. I know. I don't know what to do with that. It, it shows up as mirrored in the screen. Um, I would have to switch the cameras. Okay. Maybe next time. I'll, I'll try and, and, and get those notes for next time, but I can't get them to them right now without losing valuable time. Um, thanks for that question, though. So the, the big idea, number one, on our notes here is that God is not one of us. So who here remembers the song, What If God Was One of Us, Just a Stranger on the Bus? Yeah. So now we have that song in our head. <laughs> Hudson will sing it. <laughs> yeah, Hudson will sing it for us. So God is not one of us. God is not one of us. Okay? This is the, the big idea, the big concept. And... Um, when atheists will, will read Bible passages, or, I mean, I shouldn't, maybe I shouldn't say that, but um, when you're reading a Bible passage about the wrath of God and you feel personally offended, like you feel angry at God, you're like, this doesn't make sense. And a lot, of t- a lot of times the reason is because you're not processing the fact that God is not one of us. So uh, we could ask the question, what, God, what right... What right does God have to slaughter the Amalekites? Now, because we've already studied you know, the, the question of morality and, and um, you know, the moral argument, talking about absolute morality, we know when we're talking about what right does God have, we're, we're not talking about on whose opinion or, or it's, it's my opinion. We're talking about it's, it's right. Is it right or wrong in an absolute sense? And we're, we're questioning I think it might be wrong, God might be wrong to have slaughtered the Amalekites or to have sent the flood. But when we're talking about right and wrong, what that's pushing us towards is saying, where's, where's the standard of right and wrong? So somewhere out there, there is absolute right and wrong. You could just make it a box, I don't know why. So <laughs> this is absolute right and wrong. And we're saying this action of sending the flood or of wiping out a people group doesn't accord with this. But 
how do we, for one thing, how do we have access to that? And if God is omnipotent and all-knowing, doesn't he have better access to what is right and wrong? Absolutely. And secondly, we discussed that the best way to defend the idea of absolute right and wrong is to say that absolute right and wrong exists in the mind of God. God is the standard of ethics. God is the standard of what is absolutely right and wrong. And so even in this question, what right does God have to judge? God is the one who knows what is right. And so it, our ability to critique God breaks out in a very fundamental level. Um, further than that, let's just try for a second to imagine what it would be like if this absolute morality or a being that was absolutely perfect came down and sat among us. Would that be a good day? Yeah? Why? Because he's God. Um, without Jesus. See, this is the issue. We're jumping ahead already to Jesus. But um, C.S. Lewis will help us out here. Um, C.S. Lewis said, Some people talk as if meeting the gaze of absolute goodness would be fun. They need to think again. They're still playing with religion. Goodness is either the great safety or the great danger. According to the way you react to it. Um, it would not be a good day if absolute goodness stood in our midst. If you can think about, I mean, who is the most righteous person you know? Sometimes they walk in the room and you're like, ooh, whatever you were doing, you feel like, <laughs> should I be looking at my phone right now? Or like, I don't know. Um, we've had that experience of somebody really righteous walking in the room and you, you feel a little bit, whoa, like I don't really measure up or I need to, to question myself. To have somebody that's absolute per- absolutely perfect in our midst would be a scary thing for us sinful people. Next, if you could think about what it's like, we talked in the, um, the Big Bang, or the, the cosmological argument, talked about how God created everything, and how amazing that is, and what tremendous power God had, and such incredible intelligence. Um, if you can think about the other concept of the being that has the power to bring everything into existence. Just that tremendous amount of power. This is the being we're talking about, where he can cause everything. He can cause a big bang. He can cause a singularity. This is the sort of power that he has. Now combine these two, absolute righteousness and absolute power. Now this being is going to stand among us. This is not a good day for us outside of Christ. And I know that we are in Christ. And so when we look at Jesus, when we look at God, we see Jesus. When, Je- when God looks at us, he sees Jesus. So it's a good day when we, when we see God. But if Jesus wasn't in between us, it would not be a good day. Um, yeah. It's an illustration I want to use, but... No, I'm going to use it just because I said that. And if I don't use it, then you'll be like, what was the illustration? Um, there, in my theology class, one of my teachers was trying to express the importance of Jesus to us. And he said, look, here is God. And we are in Jesus, in God. There's us. And he said, this is really, really important. We are in God, in Jesus. We're not just in God. We're in God, in Jesus. And one of the students said, well, that, that doesn't matter that we're in Jesus. It's not theologically important. And he said, look, if I walk into the room with this coffee, the coffee's in the room. Whether it's in a mug or not doesn't matter. It's in the room. So we can just, we can forget about 
the fact that we're in Jesus, it's okay to just say that we're in God. And right away, I mean, the mug is kind of important, otherwise the coffee would fall on the floor. But um, the, the teacher didn't really know what to do with that, and so he just left. He said, no, no, it's, it's important that we are in God, or in Jesus. And as he said that, I felt like the Holy Spirit just spoke to my heart and was like, Kate, what that teacher just said is so important. What he just said, do not miss this. This is so important. And the picture that I had was, uh, sorry, I already shared this in a sermon, so you two already heard this, but imagine if we could invent an incredible spaceship and we could fly to the sun, right? And so we're flying over the surface of the sun and we're seeing the solar flares arcing over us and the power and the majesty and the beauty and the tinted windows, we're actually able to see it. It's like a living sea of fire. And Would it be important that we are in the shuttlecraft in the sun. Yes. It would be moderately important. Yes. More than moderately important. <laughs> I mean, maybe if you're talking quickly to somebody, you might say, I flew to the sun, I was in the sun. But for you personally, it's very important that you're in the shuttlecraft in the sun. The wrath of God against sin is so powerful that it is hard for us to comprehend. But when we read the pages of the Old Testament, we start to get a grasp of just how holy God is. Again, this sense of absolute right and wrong, the absolute morality of God, that this, there is no one who is righteous in God's sight. No, not one. Um, and for him, for the absolute righteousness to be combined with absolute power, and for us to be in his presence with no buffer, with no protection, that is a terrifying place. It is a terrifying thing to fall into the hands of a living God. Um, so God is not one of us. He is different. He is holy. He is the creator of heaven and earth. Um, we need to understand this or else we can't, we can't understand the Old Testament. We can't live our lives in wisdom. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Um, in every context that we live, there are things you need to know to not die. Don't walk in the street. Don't hold up a, a golf club in the middle of a, a, a thunderstorm. Don't you know, go swimming with a life jacket in, in places where there's strong current. There's dangers in the world. And if you don't understand that, that God is dangerous, you don't know the first thing about wisdom. You, you are foolish and you will not succeed um, at, at life or at eternity. Um, so that's the first thing we need to know is that God is not one of us. Um, second big idea is that for God to kill, it's not murder. When God kills somebody, it's not murder. For us, when we kill somebody, first of all, let's just think about the, the, the word murder. So I, I said kill and murder. So kill is a, a morally neutral word. You can kill a plant, you can kill a dog, you can kill a person, you can kill your wife. <laughs> Whatever. You can kill lots of people. Or you can, that, that's, a, that's a neutral term, okay? And I intentionally used, you know, weighted them differently. That's why I mentioned the wife. Um, or there's murder, or there's assassination, or there's abortion, or there is, uh, help me out, what other words we have? Execution. There's different words that we use because we want to be very clear about what's, what moral sense we mean when we say somebody was killed. Because there's a big difference between killing a dog and killing a person. There's a big difference between, <coughs> there's a big difference between executing somebody and murdering them right? So for God to kill somebody, it's not murder. 
the category of murder does not apply to God. It applies to us because we do not have a right to kill somebody. Or, it, no, I shouldn't say that because there, you know, there are times when we can um, execute somebody in a legitimate way uh, in a court or at least um, or in a war, things like that. Um, but for God, the category of murder doesn't apply in the same way. And there's at least two reasons why. God is the creator and sustainer of all biological life. So Genesis 1 and 2 talks about how God created everything and God created the whole world. In, um, in Psalm 104, 26 to 30, it talks about how God gives his spirit. Now, we don't have the Holy Spirit necessarily in us, but it's through God's giving of his spirit and his life that all living things live and breathe and have their being. And in... Um, why do I not have that passage? In uh, Colossians 1.18-ish, I have my Bible, I'll find it. Uh, it talks about how all things were created by him and through him. In him all things hold together and have their being. So, because God created us, and because we only live because of his continual infusing of life in us, the situation is very different for God than it is for you or I. I didn't cause you to live, so I can't cause you to stop living. I don't cause you to continue living, and so I would need to um, act on you to end your life that, that God gave you and that God is sustaining. This is Colossians 1, 16 to 17. For by him all things were created, both in the heavens and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. Um, Colossians 1, 17 to 18, that's not in your notes for some reason. That being said, that doesn't quite explain, especially to an atheist that, you know, that, or a skeptic that's posing questions, that doesn't quite explain how God could kill somebody, because after all, uh, your parents gave you life, but they don't have a right to take that life away. And a landlord you know, might have a right to evict his tenants to say, look, this is my house, this is my electricity, you're not paying the bill, get out of here. But he doesn't have a right to evict them in the middle of a snowstorm um, to their death, right? So, so the, the fact that God is the creator and the sustainer of life doesn't necessarily solve the, resolve the issue, although it brings us closer. The fact that God... but. The further step is that God is the locus of the moral law and the judge of all humanity. Again, God is absolute justice. He is absolute righteousness. He is holy. So Genesis 18.25 says God is the judge of all the earth. He decides who lives and who dies. And Romans, Romans 3.23, sorry, that's the wrong passage. Romans 3.23 says, um, All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, and the wages of sin is death. That's actually Romans six. 23 and 323. Um, sin, death entered through sin, through the action of Adam. All have sinned, therefore all die because we're all worthy of death. Um, so, because God is the judge, he can look at humanity and he could literally wipe us all out today, this very instant, and be morally justified in doing that because we have all sinned and we are all worthy of death. The only reason he doesn't do that right now, it says in 2 Peter 3, 9, is God is patient toward us, not wish, wishing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. So God is, has put in place a, a way of escape and salvation. He is waiting for missionaries and evangelism to save people. Uh, that's why he's not wiping everybody out, even though he would be morally justified in doing so. 
Um, are you guys clear on that, that for God to kill is not murder? And the big difference between the other faiths and, and ours, so to speak, I mean, the one that God created is um, who wants to be in the spaceship that I, that I made and who wants to be in the spaceship that God made, you know? Um, just get this mental picture of the, the kamikaze pilots that were in these you know, cardboard boxes that were getting slingshotted out towards the... Anyways, that's maybe a, a long shot. But anyways... Um, Jesus is a sure foundation. He is the protection that God has created for us to keep us safe. It's not, it's not the same to just say, oh, I'll just build an idol and, and worship that. It's, it's the same thing. No, it's not the same thing. Penicillin is not the same as Jello. <laughs> you know, This is the one that will save you. This is the one that just tastes good and doesn't do anything. Um, there's a big concept here that I, I thought I had on here, and I don't, I don't know where it went. Um, the... The love of God shelters us from the wrath of God. Okay. You could put that under, under um, the, uh, another big idea. is The love of God shelters us from the wrath of God. Um, that this concept of absolute holiness combined with absolute power is something that, yes, God is holy and God is wrathful, but that's not his heart. His heart is that none should perish. His heart is that all of it should come to repentance. His heart is Jesus wanting to gather people. You know, Jesus looked at Israel and said, so many times I've wished to gather you like a, hunt, like a hen cut, gathers his chicks. You know, and, and Jesus said, let the little children come to me. That's God's heart. But he's got his character, his nature is holiness. And so he wants to create a safe place for us, which is the whole point of Jesus coming to die for us. And it's the whole point of the Old Testament. It's the whole point of the law. Um, where this really became clear to me as I was studying the, the fear of God was um, in Exodus 19, when, Jesus, when God first shows up on Mount Sinai. This is Exodus 19. This is just extra notes, I guess. It, it's in here somewhere, just not where it's supposed to be. And, and God shows up on the mountain. And the mountain is trembling, and it is shaking, and there is fire. And on top of the mountain is where, where God is, absolute power, absolute holiness. And he's going to you know, communicate with the Israelites you know, how, how to live in a way that um, will be beneficial to them and that they can live in harmony with God. So Exodus 19, 3, Moses went up to God. and he, So Moses goes up the mountain to talk to God. And the first thing, and so then God talks to Moses, tells him some things. Moses comes back down the mountain. And then um, Moses goes up the mountain again, brings some people, goes back down the mountain. And um, what, what I found so interesting here was how many times God says something like this. You need to set boundaries all around saying, beware, do not go up on the mountain or touch it. Whoever touches the mountain will surely be put to death. 
No hand shall touch him. He'll have to be killed by stoning or by arrows. So then Moses goes down the mountain, warns people. Then he goes back up the mountain in verse 20. In verse 21, God says, Go down, warn the people so that they will not break through to, to the Lord to gaze and many of them perish. So Moses goes up, he talks to God, comes down, warns the people, goes back up again, and God says, go back down and warn them. He said, and then this is kind of interesting. That I love these dialogues between God and, and Moses sometimes. Um, also let the priests consecrate themselves or else the Lord will break out against them. Moses said to the Lord, the people can't come up to Mount Sinai for you warned us saying, set bounds around the mountain and consecrate it. He says, look, there's a wall. And also they've been warned. Like, what do you want to tell me? Um, and the Lord said, go down and come up again, you and Aaron with you, but do not let the priests and the people break through to come up to the Lord or he will break forth against them. So as you read through this passage in Exodus 19, it's hard to communicate just in a quick way, but it's just like down, up, down, up, down, up. And, and God keeps on being like, watch it, like put a boundary. Don't let them come. Go down, warn them again. You know how people are. They're going to, somebody's going to step across and come look. And it's not God's heart to to break out in wrath against his people. His heart is to say, look, I'm dangerous, okay? I'm God. I created everything. And I'm holy, and you're not. But I love you. And so here's, here's, the, here's the, the, your spaceship. And for now, it's, it's the, the Old Testament covenant. And here's where you're safe right now, okay? But just go back down them and tell them not to step out of there because... You don't realize how powerful I am and how dangerous I am. So the heart of God, the, the love of God protects us from the wrath of God. And I think this, this explains some of the breakout passages. So somebody mentioned uh, Uzziah who, who just reached out his hand to study the ark and he was stricken dead for it. Another time the ark showed up uh, after it had been given to the Canaanites for a while and a bunch of people looked in the ark, boom, uh, 57 or 5,700 of them, depending on some confusion in the text, but a whole bunch of them just died just from looking in the ark. Why? Wasn't that mean? It's the wrath of God breaking out against people. That God is holy. We need to be careful with him. But that's not his heart. All right, so let's move on now to... Yeah, so then for God to kill is not murder, but God... um, this is on page three of your notes. God orders the prog- progress of the nations. Uh, and throughout the, the Old Testament and the Old Covenant, we can see how God is, is uh, kind of shepherding the progression of the nations, so to speak. And there are three categories, so to speak, of people in the Old Testament. There's the nations. That's just everybody. All the descendants of Noah and Adam that have all these people groups in all the, the world. Um, all divided after the Tower of Babel. They all have different languages and people groups. And Acts 14, 16 says, God let them all go their own way. God wasn't judging them for worshiping uh, Molech or, or Shemosh or, or whoever their, their deities were. He was just letting them go their own way, waiting for the day that missionaries would come, that Jesus would die on the cross for them and that missionaries would come and show them you know, his, his rescue plan. But he was in some way letting them go. He was allowing them time to repent. Um, and... Uh, yeah, in, in anticipation of their eventual, you know, opportunity to hear the gospel. Secondly, we have the Israelites. These are God's chosen people. Uh, Abraham made a covenant with them. He blessed them and protected them. Um, and through them, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. Um, 
And then there are, third category, the extremely wicked nations. So yes, all the nations are going their own way, but sometimes one of them just gets a little bit too wicked, such as Sodom and Gomorrah, where God says their wickedness has risen up to heaven and I need to come down and see what's going on. Um, And God judges them. He wipes them out. He says, look, um, this is too much. And um, also there's a lot of, spe- of talk in the prophets about how God raises up rulers, he brings them down. So he, he, he's, he's looking at the progression of the human race, and he's, yes, he's letting people go for free will, uh, for people to exercise their freedom, for society to progress, to prepare a way for, for the gospel. But at a certain point he says, you know what, this nation's got to go. This king's got to go. This person's got to go for the greater good. And of course, God can have morally justifiable reasons for something like wiping out Sodom and Gomorrah, not only for their sin, but for the impact they might have on the world, their descendants and and the world at large. Um, I don't think that's hard for us to comprehend. So for God, um, to kill is not murder. And God sometimes wipes people out or or annihilates people or or things like that um, for the good, for the greater good. So the next step here is that God is able to tell people at times to do his bidding. God is able to tell people to kill somebody or to um, engage in warfare against another nation. And that is not murder. Now, hold on now. That is a really dangerous thing to say because we're living in a world that is held, you know, captive, so to speak, by terrorism, by people that think God told them that it's okay to kill. So it's very important for us to note that we live in a new covenant where Jesus said, my kingdom is not of this world, otherwise my people would fight. We do not fight for the kingdom of God because Jesus, our founder, said, we don't fight in this kingdom. We do not fight in this new covenant. But for the Jews in their time, in their place, it was okay for them to fight. And specifically, it was okay for them to fight because they were a nation. Nations fight. They have to. If you have a nation that doesn't fight, either a very peaceful island that's far from everybody else, or else it's a very short-lived enterprise because somebody will conquer them. Nations have to fight to, to police their people and also to maintain their boundaries. And the Israelite people were no exception. And the, the way that they fought was in keeping with uh, the customs of the day. Uh, but the difference is, whereas God would have sent in you know, the Babylonians to conquer the Assyrians or or the Assyrians to conquer other little people groups. And they didn't necessarily know they were doing God's bidding. With, in the case of the Israelites, they knew they were doing God's bidding. And God told them to do it, and they did it. Um, but God bears the moral guilt of that. And God is able to, because for God to kill is not murder. So that is a hard concept. Um, but I think that it, it's a hard concept just to explain to somebody just like that, because they're going to say, well, doesn't that make you... Or doesn't that make Joshua the same as Al-Qaeda or whatever? Um, But I think it makes rational sense. I think that Islam makes rational sense. That's why it's a problem. Um, But the difference is that we are not living in a covenant like that. Uh, Jesus is different, and and that situation was for then. This is now. And um, the way that God leads us forward is is different in this covenant than in the previous covenant. Other questions about that? I think that, you know, being able to present to somebody who's being offended by that, um, the idea that nations fought, that they, you know, this was actually 
Presumably, fairly routine. Do we have evidence of that? I mean, is yeah. there evidence of that? We'll get to that in a second. Okay. Actually, because yeah, go ahead. That's totally useful. I mean, it's the only difference then between the Israelites and every other nation is that they actually knew God told them to. That's yeah. really funny. <laughs> Which yeah. really is, is awful in a way. I mean, you know, that you, that you know why you're waking up these people. The other people can rest justified in their in there, you know, we were only defending ourselves, or, you know, they were, you know, but but the Israelites were actually in a position of, of saying, no, this is because God has decided to wipe out that nation and where these people. Mm -hmm. And when God wanted it wiped out, he wanted it wiped out. He didn't mm -hmm. want anybody left. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And I think the reason is, again, I mean, and old, young, children, everybody, it's for God, again, to kill is not murder. But the, the big issue was when you have a wicked society that's based around a, a certain religion, a certain way of thinking, um, that's what he's trying to stop. And it, I mean, I just keep going to the Nazis and I'm thinking, you know, if that way of thinking had to taken over the world, where would we be uh, 60 years later? And a lot of these people, um, you know, when we studied the Canaanites and, and different people like that, very wicked systems. I mean, the thing that the Bible keeps coming back to is the child sacrifice, throwing children into a fire to Molech to, to worship him. And this is kind of a center of, of the religion of one of the people that, that the Israelites uh, um, killed uh, to, to get out of their land. And also, um, but then eventually the Israelites started doing that same practice. But the point of God, you know, trying to end this religion by um, wiping out the people group is to say, look, this religion can't continue because it's going to influence the rest of the world, but also my people. And it's through the Israelite people that there's going to be this way of salvation. And if that becomes contaminated, then there is no way of salvation. And so that, that becomes a morally justifiable reason as well. It's very important to note, too, that the people were should have my, my Bible reference for this, but um, the Canaanites were not cast out of Israel because of, to make a room for the Israelite people. They were annihilated for their own sins. And um, there's a place where it's mentioned that their, their sins have not yet developed yet enough. And so it wasn't time, I believe that was during the time of Jacob, where God said their sin has not developed enough, it's not time to conquer them yet. Um, and then God made it clear in one of the prophets that it was not because of your righteousness, Israel, but it was because of their sinfulness that they were cast out of the land. I read uh, a statement that said that the reason young children, innocents, so to speak, children were, were included in the killing mm -hmm. was that it would have been better for them. They were innocent and they stayed innocent and they yeah. didn't go off to um, become wicked and continue on with the practices of their peoples. Yeah. Because presumably, we don't know exactly what God did with people in the Old Testament, but presumably they would have gone straight to heaven or, you know, something like that. They wouldn't have lived to, to do sins that they would have been judged for. Um, okay, so let's move on from that. We'll hopefully have some time in the Q&A, although uh, we started a little bit late and... Um, We'll see. Uh, so next section is when the saints do bad things. So there's all sorts of crazy people in the Bible doing all sorts of crazy things. 
Um, so what do we do with that? We can divide this into three categories. When bad, to people, when bad people do bad things, when good people do bad things, but God told them to, and when good people do bad things and God didn't tell them to. Um, so bad people doing bad things, this isn't, as much, this isn't very much of an issue. Bad people are supposed to do bad things, right? Um, but it might be an issue as you say, well, is this really a book for kids to read? Or is this a, really a book for our modern enlightened era? Uh, when you have things like child sacrifice and, and people being burned alive and eaten by animals and so on, sawn in half and things like that. Um, the tool, the first tool I want to give you is that the Bible is a real book written by, a, written about a real God that meets us in the real world. So this is real life. And as much as we're enlightened and we're so much more evolved and everything like that, this sort of stuff happens all the time. And now, especially that we have Facebook and YouTube, I mean, you can, if you wanted to, you could see people getting executed and, and getting tortured all that you like, because these are realities of our world. Um, this sort of thing goes on. And stuff like slavery, so I've heard there's more slaves in the world today than there ever have been in human history, despite our progress, despite our being evolved. And as much as we have, you know, social justice and we have a safety net and we have great advances, um, the way, one of the main ways that our society in Canada works is by exploiting third world countries and getting our, our materials and getting our labor cheap elsewhere. So let's be careful about sitting on our high horse and judging um, people in previous times. But the main point in, right here is that the Bible is a real book. This is real life, Okay. This is not a fairy world. This is not a, an artificial world. This is real life. People are mean. Brothers kill each other. Um, nations go to war against each other. People get raped. This is the real world. And this is the real world that God meets us in. And it's into this mess that God enters. And he calls people that are real and that are struggling and that are, don't have it all together. And he asks, asks them to do big things. And they do in a fallen and broken way. Um, so in that way, I think that this is, the realness of the Bible is one of the things I cherish the most about it. At first, it, it kind of shocks you because you expect to be reading a really religious book where all the good people do good things, all the bad people do bad things. It kind of plays out like an episode of Superman or Batman or something like that. And, and at the end, all the bad guys end up in prison and the good guy you know, goes home with his girlfriend and everybody's happy. That's not real life and that's not the Bible. The Bible is far more nuanced than that. Um, secondly, yeah, so that's the first category, bad people doing bad things. Look, this is a real book. It's, a, it's about real history that actually happened. Uh, the second category is good people doing bad things, especially violence, but God told them to. So we already talked about that a little bit because God carries the moral responsibility when he asks people to do, um, do violence in his name. Um, but I want to give you a second tool here, which is just a phrase, which is don't judge real history against a utopia. You guys know what a utopia is? It's a perfect world. It doesn't exist, right? We would all love to have a utopia here on earth, but it doesn't exist. So you can't go back to a situation like um, you know, Joshua and the Canaanites and say, this is the perfect situation that should have happened. He should have just asked them to leave, and they would have been like, sure, let's go. And everybody would have left, and he would have moved in. Um, you can't go back, and also you can't go back and judge an ancient culture based on the options we have 
in our context, and our context is almost like a utopia by comparison, we have liquid, liquidity of assets. We, we can pay our taxes online. We pay our taxes without even knowing it when we buy stuff, which means we have a large pool of money. So that the government, and we have a stable and safe and a large government that can pay for hospitals and schools and prisons and, and for all these things to be in place and a safety net. Um, so that people aren't starving on the streets, so that if somebody loses, if, if their crop fails, they can go in bankruptcy and, and, and the system will, will hold them up. Um, things like people being sold into slavery, things like you know, a, a, a village being conquered and the male population is wiped out, so the fighting force is neutralized, but then what are you going to do with all the women and children? Just leave them there to starve? No, they're embraced in, so then they get married or they, get, you know, they become slaves as part of the community. That's, that's horrible. That's bad. But what are the options in the day? What are the, the viable life options? Um, so, so you need to, as you're reading history, when, when you're reading the Bible, it is history, and you need to, to put on your, your historian's hat and say, what are the actual options that people had available to them? And that's, I mean, what is normal in the day, for one thing, but also just like, what else could they do? And we always just kind of assume, well, there would be a safety net. There would be, you know, free health care. <laughs> there would be all these things that we have, but they, didn't, they just simply didn't have that. Um, I want to come back again to slavery because slavery, well, this would be a good place to mention slavery. Um, it'd be great to have a whole class just dedicated to slavery because it's a huge issue. And because it's been combined with racism in a very ugly way, and because it, it became something that Christians fought for, and against in the States. Um, but racism in the Old Testament is very different than American slavery. For one thing, there's no kidnapping. Allowed kidnapping is punishable by death. Also, it's not based on race. And especially when um, slavery was... There's two types of slavery in the Old Testament. One was uh, slavery of Israel's, Israelites, and one was slavery of non-Israelites. So non-Israelite slaves was mostly when, when a, a city was conquered and they would enslave the people there. Again, otherwise, they'd likely starve to death um, or become a fighting force that would you know, be, be problematic in that way. But slavery of Israelites was a, was a safety net. And we look at that and we say, that's, that's backwards, that's repressive and all this sort of stuff in it. I mean, obviously, there's a better way to do it if we can have a tax system and, and, and a safety net. But in that day and age, um, if you couldn't pay your bills and everybody is, you know, they get a bunch of seed, they have to buy the seed, they have to, they have expenses, they put it in the ground. If the crop fails, you know, unless you have a lot of liquid assets, which they wouldn't, you're ruined. You, 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 you're, you're in debt. You can't pay off your debts. And so what would normally happen in that context was you'd be sold into slavery and your kids would be sold into slavery, your wife be sold into slavery, your, your property would all be sold, and, and you would just be kind of scattered to the wind as a family. What the Bible does is it creates a system where if somebody goes bankrupt, the family's going to buy him, and then he's going to live with a family member for seven years, and he's going to be treated well, and there's limitations on how, you know, he has to, he can't be beaten, um, he's... He can't be killed. If he gets killed, it's murder. Things like this, it is, he needs to be treated well. And after seven years, he needs to be let go. And he needs to be released with, um, with gifts and with something to start over again. Unless he's married. And unless he gets... And so 
You're right. In, um, no, it's, it's good that you're not letting me do it too. Uh, because God also cared about the rights of the property owner. You know, so then he adds things in there that you know, still kind of make us uncomfortable. Like if he gets married while he's a slave, then he doesn't get to take that wife with him. If he has kids while he's a slave, he doesn't get to take those kids with him. Um, and so then he can, make, he can make the choice. He can become a lifelong slave if he wants, but that's a free will choice. So it's, it's difficult for us because we, just, we don't see the rights of the owner at all. They don't exist. Whereas God in that context is saying, look, he's got rights too as a property owner, as you know, owning slaves. And he has to make it somewhat, he has to make it work or else it's just going to be rejected as a system. Um, this is getting on to my next point here, which I think we can move on to now. Um, actually, all the way down to five. Let's go to five on this little paper here. Is that um, the Old Testament contains both commands and concessions. There are things that God commands because this is right living and wrong living. And there are things that God concedes to say, look, this is, this is the best thing to do in, in this situation. Um, very compatible probably with um, modern moral relativism. God says in some situations and sometimes in places this is right and sometimes it's wrong. And this is you know, the right thing to do in this situation um, based on, especially on the hardness of people's hearts. So in Matthew 19, 8, Jesus lays out a very restrictive law on divorce. Uh, he says Christians ought not to be divorced, and if they are, there's a lot of debate on this, but it seems that he is saying if you get divorced, you, need, you can't get remarried. You need to go back to the person that you were married to. And some people would say there's exceptions to that, but uh, when he gets questioned on that, um, the Pharisees say, then why did... They, uh, Moses say, um, so they said to him, why then did Moses command to give her a certificate of divorce and send her away? So a, the Pharisees say there's a command in the Old Testament to divorce. And Jesus said to them, because of your hardness of heart, Moses permitted you to divorce your wives. But from the beginning, it has not been this way. And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife except for immorality and marries another woman commits adultery. So they said, there's a command, and Jesus said, no, that's not a command, that's permission. There's a big difference between being commanded to do something and having permission to do something. I tell my kids to clean their room, I say they can have a cookie if they want to. Uh, there's a big difference, there's a world of difference between those two. And God knew, because of the hardness of people's hearts, because they didn't have the Holy Spirit in them, because they didn't have the fruit of the Spirit, because they weren't living in communion with God as like they should, People are mean to one another. And there was a time and a place to say, you know what? You're better off divorcing your wife. But here's how you do it. And he said, and so there's limitations on it. Give her a certificate of divorce so she can get married again. And then the new, new covenant, we get more information. God says, okay, that's another issue here. Um, in the new covenant, God gives us more information about um, what his real heart is. Um, so you're seeing that all these tools kind of interrelate with one another, and I'm getting a little bit tangled up in them. So I hope that you will just take this, this sheet, and this is what's really important as you come back to it. 
Let's see if we can jump back into my notes here. Um, so we talked about good people doing bad things, but God told them to. That's okay because uh, God has a moral responsibility of that. Um, let's talk about tool number three. No. So God, good people doing bad things, but God did not tell them to. So good people doing sins, being sinful people. Um, what can we do with that? So obviously we can repeat the first two tools that the Bible is a real book with real people. Um, these are flawed saints, and, and I think that's encouraging to us uh, because we are flawed as well. Also, we shouldn't judge real history against our utopia. You need to ask what options people had, what information they had. Um, it's just real people doing the best they can. They mess up. Uh, this is life. But tool number three is progressive revelation. Progressive revelation is the idea that God reveals and communicates himself to us in a way that is progressive. So God tells Adam and Eve, don't eat from the tree of the garden of evil and everything will be good. Not a whole lot of commands, just one. Um, that they don't listen to that. And so then God gives them more information. He says, okay, you'll be sent out from the garden. Um, and he makes the Adamic covenant right, with the curses and stuff about uh, you'll be cursed. Uh, um, but uh, I, will be, I will send, um, <laughs> kind of botching this here, Genesis 3 talks about um, the proto-evangelion that, that uh, through the seed of, of Eve, the, the, the head of the snake will be crushed. Uh, and, but again, not a whole lot of information. Then with Noah, after the flood, God speaks to Noah and talks about um, a new covenant. He says, now you can eat the animals, uh, don't kill one another, and don't eat the blood. Uh, of animals and then we move on till we get to abraham and abraham has more information now god gives them circumcision uh they've figured out this whole thing of sacrifices to god and god gives abraham more information tests him uh his resolve with uh, isaac and then we have moses and we have tons more information with moses we have the ten commandments we have um you know the whole law and everything like that so moses knows way more than, for example, Abraham does. So one of the commandments is that you shall not marry a woman and her sister. Well, uh, Jacob was married to two sisters. He lived before the law was given. He didn't know any better. Um, so we can't judge somebody earlier in Revelation history by something that comes later. After that, I'm running out of space here, but then we have the Davidic covenant. There's some debate whether that's a covenant or just a different you know, expression of God's revelation. Then, and, and David in Psalm 51 speaks about how what God really wants is not sacrifices, but a contrite heart. And so he's, uh, he's getting it. He's getting something that Moses didn't necessarily get, and that Abraham didn't necessarily get, or certainly the people around Moses didn't get. And then we get to the prophets. And in the prophets, we hear a lot about social justice issues, and we talk about the slaves going free, and we talk about... Um, the true sacrifice, the true worship of God, not being about the sacrifice and not being about the stuff, but about the heart transformation. And then we get all the way up to Jesus, who is the full revelation of, of God. And um, Jesus said, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. This is it. We, we've made it all the way here. And then Jesus talks again, like I just mentioned, about um, divorce is, is back here. That worked for back then in that context. But what I'm saying, the full revelation is one man, one woman for life. This is how it's supposed to be. This is how it was from the beginning. Um, 
so there's progressive revelation. And we can't, um, we need to understand where people were in revelation history as well. So, so when people just simply don't have the information, you can't judge them for not having the information. Also, there's really dark times, which kind of goes along with progressive revelation. Don't know where else to put it. There's really dark times in Israel's history, especially the judges. So Samson is a great hero of the faith. He's mentioned in, in Hebrews 11, the, the hall of faith, so called, as it's called. Um, he liked to visit prostitutes, and God didn't really seem to have an issue with that. Um, he didn't commit adultery, but he had prostitutes. Um, so it's okay that in, in, we can understand it better that in, in this context, if we're looking at one thing such as Abraham and his wife and giving his wife to Pharaoh and saying she's yeah. his sister, which I found atrocious, but I'm using my frame of reference, yeah. not their frame of reference. Yeah. It is, and it's hard that he had concubines once his wife died as well. He had other wives and concubines. But David would have known that it was wrong to yeah. go after somebody else's wife. I mean, yes. That, that he would have had and, revelation. Yeah. yeah, David clearly knew that adultery, I mean, everybody knows adultery is wrong. Mm-hmm. Everybody. Um, but that's, that's, you see in the commentary and in the story, okay, so this is the next point. We'll just go on to the next point here. Um, point four is that there are sections of the Bible which are descriptive and sections that are prescriptive. Okay, so the Bible describes how uh, David coveted a woman, killed her, I mean, uh, committed adultery with her, and then killed her husband, and then married her, and then hushed the whole thing up with his power as king. But it also explains that this is not what you're supposed to do. And it explains very clearly this is a sin, sins will be punished, uh, and, and the consequences for that sin, you know, ripple effect throughout his life. And, and the rest of the story, you see all the pain and suffering that he goes through and, and his family turning against him and turning against each other. And, and uh, God said that the sword will never depart from your house because of the sin. So there's parts of the Bible that describe what real people do in real situations, in real life. And then there's sections that prescribed, this is right behavior, such as the law, such as the prophets, such as the New Testament, um, and also the commentaries within the passages. Uh, maybe I should write those down. Um, the prescriptive parts are especially the law, well, and the prophets. What I would have called the boring parts when I was a kid. I like the stories, right? But the stories are the descriptive, and, and the boring parts are the law, prophets, and the New Testament that explain, you know, what is right behavior and not. And also the, the commentaries. So right after David does his whole sin, there's a, a comment in, you know, by, by the narrator or whoever, yeah, the narrator, I guess, that what David did displeased the Lord. It's just kind of this little um, margin comment or whatever aside that this, this is wrong. This is not approved behavior. Uh, and there's going to be consequences of that. Yeah, yeah. It's very clear in the prophets that, you know, what, what is sin is and what is not. So, I mean, these things are kind of common sense. As you read the Bible, you kind of read David's story and you're like, okay, I'm pretty sure this doesn't mean I'm supposed to go out and do likewise. Um, but it makes it even clearer that there are parts of the Bible that, that make it very clear 
what right behavior is. So that leads into the last question, which is how do you, how, how can the Old Testament be seen as some sort of a moral standard when there's a lot of things that we don't use anymore, such as, you know, kosher laws? Who had bacon for breakfast this morning? <laughs> Nobody? Um, or sausage or something. I mean, we, we don't eat kosher. Um, we don't, this shirt might, for all I know, be cross-threaded. You're not supposed to have threads that are crossed. There's, we're supposed to wash our hands, you know, after we do certain things. There's this whole, you know, hundreds of laws in the, in the Old Testament that tell us how we're supposed to live, but we don't live by these. And so this is where we get back in our, at the beginning we talked about libertinism or being a libertine. So a lot of Christians that'll say, look, I, I love Jesus. I, I love walking with him, but you know what? How I live my life is a completely other story. And especially with the pressure being put on the church for homosexuality, a lot of people will say, well, look, I don't care about the ethical laws in the Bible. I just care about Jesus and salvation. That's all I care about. I don't care about, you know, um, what he says is right and wrong. And sometimes, I mean, Tony, Tony Campolo, who here has had, heard of Tony Campolo, used to be really popular, not so much anymore, um, is somebody that would, would go to the Old Testament and say, look, here's all the, the crazy ethical laws in the Old Testament, or the, the crazy laws in the Old Testament that we don't use anymore. So why are we using this one on homosexuality? This one also shouldn't apply anymore. Kind of leveraging it to say, all we need is Jesus. We'll just follow Jesus. Don't worry about the ethical laws. Um, so there's a really helpful division. This is the last page here. We're getting to the end. Um, is we can divide the Old Testament into uh, moral laws, civil laws, and ceremonial laws. There's moral laws, civil, and ceremonial. Um, I like to start at the bottom here with cer ceremonial. So there's a bunch. When I explain the gospel to people, often there's a pushback of all religions teach the same thing. And I like to take that and say, yes, it's true. All religions talk about doing good things to impress God to get into heaven. And the good things are usually ethical behavior and jumping through hoops. So... Ethical behavior, we all understand, but jumping through hoops, I mean, what kind of hat you wear, what kind of clothes you wear, um, places you go to, how you pray, things that you do, kind of religious work to impress God. Um, so this is the ceremonial laws. There's religious work, there's religious things that people did that were commanded to do in the Old Testament that didn't make sense. Ethics makes sense. Everybody understands don't commit adultery, don't steal. It doesn't make sense to take a perfectly good bull and kill it and burn the whole thing and not eat it when you're, you know, hungry people. Um, you're not filthy rich. It doesn't make sense necessarily to have to wash your hands all the time or, or different things like this. So the ceremonial laws are purely to point people to, um, well, they, they serve a religious purpose. So what was that religious purpose? part of it yeah so um th there are at least four reasons for the ceremonial law pointing people to christ so all of hebrews talks about how jesus is the better high priest and how he is the one sacrifice once and for all so pointing people to christ you can just look at all of hebrews um, to explain that it's providing a visual represent representation of moral sin um that's kind of long for you to write uh, so it's a visual representation of sin. In Isaiah 64, 6, it says your, you, your righteousness is like filthy rags. 
So filthy rags is, is ceremonial uncleanness. And it says you, your evil, your moral guilt is like ceremonial guilt. So it's kind of a visual reminder. After the people had gotten so used to thinking in terms of clean and unclean, clean and unclean, they were able to understand, okay, sin makes me unclean. And so it was like this visual reminder of this is what it means to be sinful in God's sight, morally, internally. Um, it was to keep the Israelite people separate from the surrounding nations, so separation. Um, and also to give them a culture, uh, to give them an identity, because the Israelites coming out of Egypt, they didn't know who they were, and so God gave them an identity as a people group uh, with customs and, and, and laws and, and a way of dressing and, and songs and things like that. Uh, finally, promoting health and well-being. So there's been tons of studies lately um, about all the benefits of living kosher and eating kosher. And I've heard actually that uh, cancer is remarkably less common among uh, Hasidic Jews or, or among Jews that, that eat kosher. Um, but certainly in the Old Testament context where there weren't cleanliness the way that there is now, um, not eating pigs, scavengers, not eating shellfish, washing your hands all the time, um, not touching dead things, and if anything unclean, a.k.a. a mouse, a.k.a. a rat, a lizard, if it touches your food, that food is unclean, you can't eat it. If it touches a pot, a cooking utensil, you need to either wash it, break it, or sterilize it with fire. These things make tremendous sense from our perspective. They wouldn't have known it at the time, but I see this as God, you know, infusing just kind of being like, you know what, if you do these things, less of you will die. And it's kind of his compassion on the people as well. There's tons of things like crop rotations that at the time just seemed like a waste of time. Why would I not plant my field this year? But it actually makes a lot of sense in a long-term forecast to let part of your ground rest because the nutrients will rebuild. So that's the ceremonial law. It all points to Christ. It all is fulfilled in Christ. And so it's, it's no longer binding on us. We don't sat we don't do circumcision. We don't um, offer sacrifices. Um, the civil law refers to um, the, the theocracy that was set up under, you know, because God had a theocracy where, where God was establishing the nation of Israel. Now we are not part of a theocracy. Uh, Jesus said, my kingdom is not of this world. And so, and, and we need to pay our taxes to Caesar. There's a difference between this, the state and the church, whatever that, you might work that out. And then there's the moral commandments. And that's kind of just everything that's left over after we, we talk about these two things. But it's not, it's not hard to figure out what are the moral commandments. Things like don't kill, respect your parents, um, don't commit adultery, and worship God alone. Sometimes the moral commandments end up in civil commandments because, you know, if you disrespect your parents, there's a death penalty. So it's not hard for us to read that and be like, okay, disrespect of parents is very important to God. We don't live in a theocracy anymore. It's a new covenant, new situation. But we understand that this is a very important concept for God. We understand this is a very important law. And so the moral, the ethical continues on and is still uh, binding to us. The last big idea that I need to communicate, I'm sorry this went way longer than I thought, we don't have much time for questions, um, is that ceremonial uncleanness is not the same as ethical guilt. So as you read through the Old Testament, I mean, you give birth, a woman gives birth and she's unclean. And you're like, what did she do? It's not a sin. Um, 
But that's ceremonial uncleanness. That's not the same as guilt. That's not the same as, as sinning. Um, it, it's communicating the idea of, of um, ceremonial uncleanness, literal uncleanness, um, and there's a whole bunch of other things you know, that, that can make you unclean, such as touching a dead body, such as any, just about any bodily fluid will make you unclean if you touch them. Um, so, does anybody have any questions for the last three minutes of our time? I don't know. And I actually just taught on this last year, and <laughs> I was like, I don't know, um, at, uh, at Parole de Vie where I taught. But the reason that's such a hard passage is there isn't a commentary note. And it comes right at the end of Judges, and it ends, and you're like, and that's the end of the book. And you're like, was that a good action? Was that a bad action? You don't really see the, what was his mind? Well, he wanted to start a civil war, and he succeeded. It was a very effective strategy. I have fascinating commentary about that. Okay. Um, and, but the, it, and it outlines the fact that she is um, from Bethlehem, so she was Bethlehem, that she's a picture of Christ. Because ultimately, her body is broken for the 12 tribes of Israel. And that there's a lot of extremely uh, um, symbolic stuff in there, that you can actually read Jesus, and that Jesus, therefore, was fully present and in compassion and understanding of her. That it's really a beautiful commentary. Yeah, and it calls her his concubine, and it calls him her husband, mm-hmm. which is kind of like the same picture, mm-hmm. you know. Mm-hmm. So for all these, there's going to be there's going to be options like that, and certainly you can see the deeper spiritual significance and say there's something mm-hmm. beautiful here. But on the prima facie, mm-hmm. is just going to be there. This is this is messed up. Yeah. And I guess that's where I would just go back to say these are messed. This is the real world. Like this sort of thing still happens, and it's it's horrible. Um, but I think it's descriptive more than prescriptive. Well, it is not prescriptive. It is describing what happened. But the Holy Spirit wandered in the Bible. I mean, we yeah. we actually do have to take the time to to dig into these things and not just go, oh well, that was gross, boo. Mm-hmm. You know, because it's there. Yeah. Do you mind of, of all the stories they could have told in Judges? I'm sure there was 18,000 other equally horrible stories that could have been told, and yet this one was told. Well, actually, now that I'm thinking back on that specific thing, that actually happened fairly early in the history of the judges. Mm -hmm. But the author of Judges put it at the end, and then afterwards he had a note that um, during this time there was no king in Israel. Everybody did what was right in their own eyes. Mm -hmm. I think he put that twice towards the end. And so I think that was the comment that, look, this was a crazy time. Like, nobody knew what was right anymore. And so it's maybe not quite, you know, it's less clear than, than perhaps David's sin, which is more straight up, you know, this was a sin, this was wrong. But I think the commentary kind of makes it clear that this was a, this was a difficult time, and people didn't know what to do. They didn't have full revelation. So I think that's it for our time. Um, Incredible wrath of God, and it, 
actually see the world as potentially bathed in wrath, and, mm -hmm. and, and just from the sheer reality of who God is, you know, that, that, that the, the idea that he's actually trying to create conditions under which we can be with him is incredibly compassionate. Yeah. He's referring to the love of God. The love of God. Who, uh, protecting, protecting God. Protecting God. Protecting God. Yeah. What a cool yeah. idea. Let, let me share. We're just a little over time. Let me share with you a passage that totally messed me up. Um, <laughs> I don't know exactly what reference it is, um, but it says that whoever believes in the Son has life. Whoever does not believe in the Son does not have life. Um, but he stands judged already because the wrath of God abides on him. I'm getting it a little bit wrong, but the wrath of God abides on him. He who does not believe in the Son of God. And um, what's that? I missed that one. Yeah, I need to find it for you. So that's interesting. So the world is bathed in the wrath of God. Yeah. And if, if you do not believe in the Son of God, you are, you're condemned already. That's what I'm... Because the wrath of God abides on you. And the word abide in the Greek is the same concept of the, the manifest presence of God tabernacling with the people of Israel in the wilderness, that he abides with them, and that's a good thing. Mm -hmm. But the wrath of God abides with people, um, which is why it's so desperately important it's to only, share. Go ahead. Sorry, only one. The wrath Ro of God is being revealed from heaven against mm -hmm. all the godlessness and wickedness of people who suppress the truth by their wickedness. Yeah. So that was part of my argument that even people who the people who've never heard of God are still condemned. Yeah. All right, well, I'm going to formally wrap this up. Thank you, Lord, for this material, and I just pray that your blessing would be on it, and uh, pray that we can go from here with, um, as agents of reconciliation to a world that really needs it. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Would you like to pray?